At least 45 states in the District of Columbia have closed school buildings for the remainder of the academic year in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The rest seem poised to follow. Reopening those buildings in the fall will be critical to reopening the broader economy. But what will it take to do so safely? I'm Marty West, Editor of Education Next, and my guest today is John Bailey, Visiting Fellow in Education Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. John previously served as the Special Assistant to the President for Domestic Policy at the White House and as Deputy Policy Director for the U.S. Department of Commerce, where he helped develop the National Strategy for Pandemic Influenza. He's the lead author of the new report, A Blueprint for Back to School, that's available now at educationnext.org and will be the focus of our conversation today. John, welcome back to the EdNext podcast. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Yeah, we've been drawing on your expertise in this area frequently over the past month or two and are grateful for your willingness to uh, contribute. I was struck in looking at this new blueprint that you co-authored with Executive Editor of Education Next, Rick Hess, your colleague at the American Enterprise Institute, by the fact that you're writing not just uh, for yourselves, but also for quite a broad and large group of signatories. Uh, I believe there are 19 others who have attached their names to this blueprint. Uh, tell us a bit about that group and how the blueprint was developed. Yeah, that's great. It was um, an amazing collaborative effort. We have, to your point, 19 former officials uh, that joined this effort, including uh, people who worked in the federal government for both the Clinton, Bush, and Obama uh, administrations. Uh, we had former state chiefs, former superintendents, former charter school leaders, uh, and again, across the whole political spectrum, Republicans and with Democrats, uh, in names that are, I think, very familiar to your listeners and to readers of Education Next, Kaya Henderson, who led D.C. public schools, Chris Cerf, who had multiple roles uh, as a state chief in New Jersey and also uh, taking the helm of Newark. Um, we also had uh, David Steiner, Candace McQueen, uh, Andy Rotherham, John White, Nina Reese. It was just an all-star group. Um, the reason we wanted to pull this type of team together was to look at what this goal uh, for the fall should be in terms of reopening schools and then working backwards. What are the things we need to consider now as federal policymakers, as state policymakers, and also as local school systems uh, to begin putting in place all the plans and preparations necessary to reopen next year? And the overall stance of the report, at least as I read it, seems to be let's find some way to make physical school work somehow in the fall. And that is something of a contrast with an alternative perspective that worries that even having that conversation is dangerous and will lead us to put the health of our most vulnerable at risk. Uh, I don't know, is that a fair interpretation that you were sort of a can-do spirit to the analysis, even as you try to be sensitive to the uh, need to be cautious. No, I think what we tried to do, and we spend several pages before we even get to a discussion about education, really trying to anchor these conversations and these decisions in the conversations around public health. And, and what you have right now is a debate that's occurring around the country about the public health frameworks that will guide the decisions about relaxing the social distancing measures uh, the governor's put in place over this, these last two months. 
and also the conditions in which those measures should be reactivated. And so Scott Gottlieb at uh, AEI released an initial uh, roadmap for reopening that sort of put out at least some criteria in this space. Uh, since then, CAP has released a report, Johns Hopkins has released a report, uh, there was a study that came out of Harvard that also released their criteria. It's all from a public health standpoint. Uh, and so any conversation we have about reopening schools needs to be linked and connected and anchored in those public health uh, frameworks. Um, the posture we took is that the moment public health officials say it's okay to open schools, then we in the education community need to be ready to do that. And I think what uh, struck Rick and I um, a couple weeks ago is that we were hearing too much fatalism, uh, I think, in, in the education sector, of just like there's no way we're going to be able to open schools or the challenges are too great. And we just felt like that's just not uh, spirit worthy of the kids that we're trying to serve. And we wanted to at least start helping to chisel out what some of these big considerations might be and charting a path to help uh, schools get there. And you ultimately chart a path or organize the steps that are needed to chart a path into six broad categories that might help system leaders at the state and local level, because that's where these decisions are going to be made, uh, figure out what they need to do to get ready. So do you want to start walking us through some of the topics that you think it's important for them to be addressing? Sure, absolutely. Um, before I get to the topics, just one other thing I just want to emphasize is that we, we also try to ground this in sort of four assumptions, um, which are important to kind of realize, like th this was a, the assumptions we based a lot of these recommendations around. And the first is that uh, public health officials would say uh, when it's ready, that schools can open, but we're also assuming that there's going to need to be rolling school closures next year for 14 to 28 days. And so that's something schools need to plan for. The New York City could have another outbreak. They might need to close for a month. But schools in Montana may not be having uh, an outbreak and could still be operating. And so rolling closures is something we have to plan for. Second, uh, based on public health guidance, we understand that schools are going to have to operate and function differently, that there's going to be important health protocols in terms of physically distancing desks in a classroom, temperature checks when uh, people walk into the classroom, a bunch of these that are gonna be developed and released over the next couple of months. And that is gonna change the way that we structure schools. Um, and then we're also gonna need accommodations for teachers that are the most vulnerable, meaning that they're at an age or pre-existing health conditions and it might be unsafe for them to come back to school. I know we'll talk about that in a little bit later. And then lastly, which is, is an assumption that, again, I, I'm not hearing many talk about in education, is that if a vaccine truly is at least 18 months away, that, that means these accommodations and this disruption happens not just for this coming academic year, but for the following academic year uh, as well. And so those assumptions we're guiding uh, are sort of buckets of different categories. Um, the six categories are general considerations, and this is everything from community coordination uh, thinking about regulatory flexibility and about ensuring that there's privacy protections with all the digital resources kids are using. School operations, as we were just talking about, the health protocols are going to totally change uh, the way we structure classes, the disinfecting that will happen need to happen inside of buses and classrooms and, and uh, hallways. Uh, whole child support, so social emotional learning and mental health, uh, particularly given uh, kids that have just gone through a lot of trauma with losing friends and families to COVID or 
or family that have lost income as a result of losing their job uh, due to uh, the economic crisis. School personnel, we just talked about, but there's gonna be a whole group of teachers that is gonna be too risky for them to come back to school. And so we have to figure out new roles for them and also new ways of backfilling uh, their positions uh, inside of schools. Uh, academics, which is continuity of learning, uh, whether or not kids are in school or out of school, how do we make sure that it's a, uh, a seamless process uh, for students so that they're getting the best education, including accommodating students with unique learning needs, uh, students with special needs, uh, as well as ELL learners uh, as well. And then finally, distance learning. Like I think we've all just seen this massive ex uh, experiment with distance learning over the last couple of months. We have this chance now to kind of pause, look back, see what worked and what didn't work, and make sure it's a better experience for teachers and students uh, moving forward. Well, we could do a podcast on any one of those buckets separately, uh, but let's zero in now on the school personnel challenges that you just mentioned. Uh, I believe you all note in the blueprint that nearly one in five teachers is over the age of 55. More than one in four principals is over the age of 55. Age is obviously one of the indicators of being particularly susceptible to uh, life-threatening health challenges uh, under COVID-19. What challenges does that create and how can school systems think about responding? Well, so we still are learning a lot about COVID-19 and there's a lot of mysteries about the virus, including why children aren't uh, presenting with symptoms or why they, they seem to not be getting as most severe symptoms as some of the other, uh, some other patients. The one thing that is clear, uh, both here in the US as well as internationally, is that the most vulnerable uh, category of patients are those who are older and those who have uh, pre-existing health conditions. Now the CDC defines that as age 65 and above. The data that we used um, uh, from NCS only went uh, to teacher ages 55 and above. We think that's okay because actually, if you look at some of the data coming out of Colorado, uh, their highest infection group and the second highest hospitalization rate is coming from people age 55 and above. And what this all suggests and what all the public health frameworks um, point to is that people in this vulnerable age should continue sheltering place, even though uh, the rest of society is beginning to open up. And if we take that to heart, that means that there's, again, 19% of teachers who potentially are not gonna be able to come back to the school building because it's just gonna to be too risky. Uh, and even if they were allowed, there's still gonna be a certain percentage of them that are gonna feel unsafe and not willing to come back. And so the question is, what do you do there? And, and we put out some ideas for everything from early retirement uh, incentives. Uh, it's also the chance to potentially take these teachers and uh, put together a state or national teaching corps where it's a, a pool of teachers that can teach online if they're given the right type of training and support. But it's gonna be a lot of creative um, problem solving uh, in order to sort of tackle this. We have another paper coming out from AI in about a week that will have a little bit more detail on this, including state-by-state -state breakdowns as well. Now, if a fifth, a quarter of the teaching workforce is unable to be in school buildings, the virtual tutoring idea is an interesting way of using that talent. But I think one of the things that implies is that there may be demand for hiring a bunch of educators. Uh, 
And so you all discussed the potential value of certification flexibility, right? That would allow school districts quickly to restaff uh, without certification hurdles being a barrier. And I mentioned that because it's sort of one example of the type of regulatory flexibility that you argue may be needed more generally as schools seek to find solutions that allow them to be physically open this year. Can you talk about regulatory flexibility generally and how we should be thinking about it uh, in this context? Yeah, I think, you know, most of the conversations I've always focused on uh, state uh, flexibility needs related to the federal government and waivers from uh, ESSA and from accountability uh, requirements and uh, assessment requirements. But there's equal amounts of flexibility that local school systems will need from uh, state government. And that is everything from procurement, that there's gonna, uh, going to be a need for schools to uh, acquire uh, a bunch of different resources and online services and digital tools, as well as uh, uh, physical and print materials. They're going to need uh, flexibility to do that quickly and not just go through the normal um, procurement processes that often can take weeks or months uh, in some cases. The teacher certification is another one that you just mentioned is that you're going to have schools uh, facing uh, talent pipeline challenges at both ends, like a pool of teachers that may be able to teach across state lines and simultaneously needing to bring teachers physically from across state lines. And one of the strategies we saw some governors using uh, as part of their COVID response uh, to help surge capacity at different hospitals was to waive uh, or create more flexibility for some of the, the health requirements. And so that way a doctor or nurse practitioner or some other sort of medical specialist from one state could travel to Massachusetts and uh, surge capacity inside of a hospital. We may need that same sort of approach uh, in education for next year, just to kind of help surge capacity to uh, the states and the cities and the districts that have the, the most vulnerable populations there. And then let's talk to this assumption that schools need to be ready, yes, to be open physically in the fall, but also ready for the likelihood that they may have to close temporarily uh, over the course of the 2020-21 school year, or even potentially the school year that follows that, uh, that creates a real challenge because as we know, the, the best approaches to online instruction don't involve just doing exactly what you were doing in the classroom online, but really preparing a, a different approach that takes advantage of the, the technology and, and what it offers. So. Uh, you know, how can schools be thinking about being ready to uh, be effective both in person and online in the same academic year? It's a great question. I think you're right. Like, I think the, the type of model that seems to be the most effective isn't just 100% purely online or 100% traditional class. It's the hybrid models. And these have had different names over the years, blended learning that uh, Michael Horn and the Christensen Institute have talked about and flipped classrooms, but all of them sort of take the best of technology and sort of blend it in some ways with the best of in-person uh, teaching. And, and I think what schools are going to need is some form of that that can uh, be dialed up or down depending on the type of school model that's needed given the health situation. So there are going to be some periods where perhaps they need to move uh, fully online, which is less than ideal, but it's better than not receiving any education. 
Um, one of the ideas that, that actually came from a friend uh, when we were sharing this report was the, the whole idea that schools throughout the year do a bunch of drills uh, for hopefully things that never have to occur, like whether it's they do fire drills. I think most states mandate doing a fire drill once a month. And what we might want to do uh, with schools is go to like a remote learning drill, like once a quarter, just something where like kids stay home, teachers are teaching, and we kind of see like, are the plans working? Are they in place? Like what else needs to be fine-tuned so that if that's needed, uh, we have some of the kinks worked out uh, in time. Now you mentioned a moment ago the possibility that some educators may not feel comfortable or safe returning to physical school buildings. I imagine that may also be the case for some families as well, that uh, they may not be comfortable sending their child back to in-person school settings. I wonder if that issue came up in your conversations and what you all decided are the obligations that school systems should have. They traditionally have enforced in-person attendance requirements. Should that be something that should also be more flexible going forward? Yeah, it did come up uh, and we did try to address it uh, a bit in the report, mostly in, in saying that schools needed to have a plan for what would happen if parents did not feel it was safe for their child to come to school. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of that could just be perceived risk. Some of it could also be because uh, there is someone in that vulnerable population at the child's home. And if there's a fear that a child going to a school may catch COVID and bring it back home, the uh, family members may and the guardians may not feel like that's something, a risk that they, they want to take. Um, we also feel like it's really important for state policymakers to begin outlining what this criteria might be in decision processes because it's it's going to be a friction uh, and unless there's sort of clear um, a, a clear guidance and a deliberative process, uh, we're in for uh, a lot of challenges for next year. Now you all are trying in this report to lay out a set of recommendations or at least considerations for policymakers to have in mind. You also acknowledge though that there's a ton of uncertainty and that we are learning new lessons about this disease every week. And that's gonna to continue to unfold over the course of the summer as school systems are engaged in this task of preparing for the coming academic year. What should we be paying attention to in terms of what we really need to know that could have implications for what schools are able to do next year? Yeah, I think the most important thing is that schools really have to adopt an adaptive planning mindset, meaning we are so used to having uh, sort of a legislative process that a bill passes, it goes to an executive uh, agency, they give guidance, and then we know how to plan against that guidance. That's not the way this is going to play out, that uh, we are still learning a lot about the virus. Uh, and uh, Every single time we learn a little bit more, it's going to fine tune uh, the guidance and that's going to evolve over time. So we need plans that evolve as our understanding of the virus evolves. Uh, I will look, I, I think we should look internationally. We have a number of experiments going on right now with schools reopening in Denmark, in Germany, with France, uh, many of them using some of the physical distancing and health protocols that we were talking about at the beginning of this. I think that's going to give us some lessons about what worked and what doesn't work, and that's gonna inform our reopening uh, here in the United States. There's also just still a large number of unanswered questions about the virus itself. We don't know why students aren't developing severe symptoms with COVID. We don't know 
uh, how uh, if students can transmit the virus. And there, there's such conflicting research on that right now. There's uh, a study in Australia that says, no, students can transmit uh, the virus. And then another study that uh, came out of Germany last week that said, yes, they can. Uh, both are going through peer review. There's some other studies that are coming out, but that's going to be a, a incredibly important issue to get resolved in the scientific community in, in order to inform what we should do as the education community. My guest today has been John Bailey, visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. You can find his new report, A Blueprint for Back to School, online at educationnext.org. John, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.